Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. The life and the provision which God had given them was forsaken because of their idolatry. The intimate fellowship that they had with their creator was marred. The beauty of their God was now veiled to their eyes. Yet God has now sent his son veiled in flesh so that his flesh might be torn. And through that torn flesh, we now enter into the presence of our creator once again, into the Holy of Holies, beholding the beauty of his glory and enjoying the intimate fellowship of our God. Because of Jesus, our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins, we now know and give proper thanks to our Creator again. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus 7, we'll begin in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which shall be presented to Yahweh. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. And of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to Yahweh. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offerings. Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offering, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what is left of it may be eaten. But what is left over from the, uh, from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. So if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, and it shall not be reckoned to his benefit. It shall be an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it shall bear his own iniquity. Also, the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to Yahweh, in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. And when anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to Yahweh, that person shall be cut off from his people. We'll turn now to the book of Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews, chapter 13. Reading verses 14 and 15. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 50, verses 1 through 15. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. 
I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And I want to start by reading this, this uh, proclamation from Paul that we know well, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, unwickedness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I read this so that we can pay attention to verse 21. The heart of the matter here is they began with this stance. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So all of the sins that we abhor, the ones we look at in our country and, and are rightly abhorred by, they stem out of this beginning. They did not acknowledge God. They did not honor God. They did not give thanks to God. And what we'll find from Psalm 50 is if, if we fall into that trap, it will lead to the same end for us. God calls us to thanksgiving. So if you remember, we began last week a short series looking at the Psalms as the indwelling rich word of God in us, given for teaching, for admonition, so that we sing those Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another in thanksgiving to God from the heart. So today we're going to look briefly at Psalm 50. So if you would turn there, and then we'll, we'll pause and pray. So if you would, pray with me now. Father, we come to you, and we know that you are the good God who made us. You're the maker of the heavens and the earth. You are the one that created us, and as we're reminded this morning, you called us forth out of sin into life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. You are the one who's done all good things. You give us the bread on our table. 
You give us the mouths to rejoice. And so, Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you would fill us with a heart of thanksgiving, that in obedience to you, we would come into your presence with clean hearts, having been made clean by the blood of the Lamb, and tongues that are, are ready now to profess that you are our good and loving Father. You are the good God who made us and has given us all good things. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So in Psalm 50, we looked briefly at Psalm 1 and 2 last week, and remember these are songs made to be sung in public by, by the congregation. Psalm 50 is significantly further on in the Psalter, so it, it's in the middle of book 2, and we find ourselves, this is a, uh, a psalm that the inscription is a psalm of Asaph, and it sits between two series of psalms uh, that compose the second book of the Psalter. So that first series of psalms is composed by the sons of Korah, and the second series of psalms is composed by David, and that carries us through the end of the book. And in each one of those series of psalms, they begin with lament. So if you remember Psalm 42, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, that's Psalm 22. I'm confused. Anyways, I should, uh, I should probably uh, just read it for you. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Remember, it's a psalm about being absent from God's presence. The psalmist wants to come into and sing with thanksgiving in the house of God, and yet he's set apart. And the psalms of David begin the same way, so that the first in the, the series of psalms that we see beginning in Psalm 52 are psalms of David in which he's outside of the house of God. Saul is pursuing him, and so there's psalms of lament. But each one of these series of psalms culminates in praise. And so we, we sing through the lament, my God, why I, I want to come into your house. I want to be with you. And yet as we move forward, we see in the goodness of God that he brings these psalms to a conclusion in which the psalmists enter into God's house. We see that God as king sits down on the throne and there's justice and righteousness and his people are welcomed in to sing praise in the midst of his house. So Psalm 50 sits as a transitional psalm in the midst of these two series and it's about, it's about this case. So I'm going to read it for you one more time because as we read it together we didn't read the, the whole psalm and then I'll give you some structure to think through. So Psalm 50 the mighty one God, or El Elohim Yahweh, has spoken. He summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, and out of Zion the perfection of beauty God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it's very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather, my godly ones, to me. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge." Selah. Hear, O my people, and I'll speak. O Israel, I'll testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, for your ascension offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose and evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son, and these things you have done, and I have kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you. I will state the case in order before your eyes, and now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver he who act, offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. So this song comes in three parts. It's, it's one of the easiest 
songs to, to uh, attach an, an outline to, so that makes my job a little bit easier. In Psalm 50, the first six verses are a summoning. God himself is calling his people to him, and he's not just calling his people. You see, he's summoning the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And we have then a string of names here for, for God, El Elohim Yahweh. This is in the midst of books two and three, which are called the Eloistic Psalter, in which most of the names of God are, it seems, changed to Elohim instead of Yahweh. And so you can, you can see this when you look at Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. They're the same song, but in Psalm 14 in book one, it's written with the name Yahweh. In Psalm 50, 53, it's written as God, Elohim. The, the fool has said in his heart, there is no, no God. And so we, we see that evidence, and there's this transition. But here in the beginning of Psalm 50, we have this full string, El Elohim Yahweh, the Mighty One, the God, with his personal name Yahweh, the memorial name of the Exodus. He's calling now to his people. He summons the earth, and there's a, then this, this temporal nature, from the rising of the sun to its setting. So all, all day long he's summoned this, you could say, is the day of the Lord. He's calling to his people, or I think back to, to Genesis chapter 3, he comes to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, and he finds him falling short. Here we have one day, from the rising of the sun to its setting, El Elohim Yahweh calls. He summons the earth, and he does it from a location, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. So God is enthroned. And this is following up on Psalms 45 through 49. God is enthroned then on the Mount Zion. And he's sitting, calling his people to come worship. And in that call, during the day of the Lord, he summoned them to review and to judge them. And so Psalm 50 is rightly and properly a call to worship. It's a call, a summons into God's house to be reviewed by him. And along with the worshipers, he calls first the earth, and then in, uh, in verse 4, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. And that's just a reminder to us that God invited at the covenant at Mount Sinai. First, he, he called his people again there to worship them, and he gave them a covenant there. They, they made a covenant with their God, and he summoned heaven and earth as a witness to the signing of that covenant. So that now there's two or three witnesses as the nation of Israel says before their God, we will obey. All that you've said, we will do. We will meet with you here. And now he summons those same witnesses to his side as he calls his people again to take, to take part. And so you could look at this as a court scene or as a Sabbath scene coming into God's presence. It really depends on how the review turns out. Our God comes in verse 3. He comes, he will not keep silent fire devours before him wherever god goes the earth shakes and the heavens tremble and now god is going to break his silence so in the course of a week you would think about god being silent for six days he doesn't speak as the people go about their business but then he calls them into his presence and you can look at history it's punctuated with calls of god where there were periods of silence years, hundreds of years of silence, and then God calls and he answers. And it's a reminder to us that though it may seem as God, that God is silent, and he's going to explicitly remind us that, of that in the end of this song, his eyes are upon the sons of men. He looks down from his throne and circled above the heavens of the earth, and he sees. And so our God is going to come and he's going to speak in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the tempest, so if you're thinking of the house of God, the Shekinah glory is flooding into that house. The fire there, the fiery pillar with the cloud, if you're at the tabernacle, is resting there, and God calls his people then. He summons, verse 4, the heavens above and the earth as co-judges with him to hear the case. And then in verse 5, we have the call to us. Gather to me, my godly ones, the Hesed, those who have cut a covenant with me by sacrifice, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And so the first part of the song then is all about calling the heavens, the earth, and God's people together. It's a day of worship and a day of review. The second section 
begins in verse 7 and ends in verse 15. And then there's a final section from 16 to the end of verse 23. And if you were, you were listening and you had ears to hear, you'd see that they're punctuated at the end with this repetition, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High, El Elyon, and call upon me in the day of trouble. Or in verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And so the, the point, what God is calling the worshiper to is the same in both halves of his call. But I think the psalm will make more sense if you picture the way that God called his people into covenant in Deuteronomy after they had broken the covenant, and he gives a second law again. He says, when you enter the, law, the land, what I want you to do is to put six tribes up on Mount Ebal and six on Mount Gerizim, and then I'm going to speak the blessings and the cursings. And so we have a word of God directed one way, and then a word of God directed the opposite direction. So verses 7 through 15 would be pointed towards the, the righteous for, for blessing on, on Mount Ebal. And then in verse 16, you see that's punctuated, but to the wicked, God says. And so he's called all his people, all those in covenant to him, and now he's speaking to two varieties of people, those that have stood in righteousness and then those that are wicked. But to the wicked, he says in verse 16. And we'll see, see how this goes. So... Um, Verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I'll speak, O Israel, I'll testify against you. Now, if you think about what I just told you, you say, well, wait a second. Here, here on the Mount Ebal, those are, those are the righteous ones, so why is God testifying against them? Even for those that he's called into his presence that are standing in righteousness, we have a word of, uh, of reproof. And we'll see just what, what that is. He says, I am... God, your God, but, verse 8, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. That's balanced in the second half of the song in verse 21, I will reprove you. So there, there is something which he's not reproving them for, and then there is a very strong reproof. But in the first half, there, there still is a word of instruction. So verse 8, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices. This is the word zevek, which is going to be used of the, the peace offering he talks about here in just a minute. I don't reprove you for your sacrifices or your ascension offerings. As I called you to do, they're continually before me. So those sacrifices are being brought before, before God, but God wants to, he, he's going to address the heart of the worshipers. So verses 9, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, he wants to clarify something. I shall take no young bull from your house, nor male goats out of your folds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. All the world is mine and its fullness thereof. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? So God is, is saying here, you're bringing to me what I asked, but there's a problem in your conception, or there could be a problem in your, your, your conception. So he's reminding them, I am the God that made the heavens and the earth. I am the one that put the cattle and the goats and the sheep in your folds. I do not need them. Those sacrifices that you're bringing before me in obedience are not brought because I'm hungry. They're not brought because I'm poor. And so, lest we forget God, lest we misconceive who God is, when we come into his presence to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, remember who God is. This is El Elohim Yahweh, the maker of heavens and the earth, the one that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt with that memorial name. He's both. He both made them and he saved them. He does not need their cows and their sheep and their goats. He is not hungry. If he was, he would not tell them. And there is a real temptation to take our worship and to improve it so that it's just right, but to forget the God that we worship, to forget the one that, he's, that, that, that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And even even in our praise, he delights in it, but he does not need it. 
He is the one who made us. And when we come before him with the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus, even then, he delights in it. He delights in his people, but it is for our sake that he calls us. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we, we, we come back to the offering of thanksgiving, but the conclusion of God speaking is, this is what I want. Just after saying, I, I don't need bulls and goats and, and sheep, they're all mine, he then says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But those are bulls and goats and sheep. And so he's not saying don't bring them, but he is saying think rightly about who I am. So we'll come back to verses 14 and 15 as, as the point of this call, but in verse 16 he has a word of strong rebuke. But to the wicked, God says, and again, he's called them into his house, but he says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? We come as the covenant people of God, and we come to speak back the words of those covenant to God. But he says, what right have you to do to take these words in my mouth? What right have you to offer these sacrifices before me? What right have you to call upon my name? If you look directly from verse 15, his call to his people is, call on me in the day of trouble and I'll rescue you. But to the wicked, what right have you to take my statutes, my words, or my name? Because what you've done, verse 17, is you hate discipline. You hate the heavy hand of the Lord upon you, and so you've cast my words behind you. Although he's speaking to those who are his chesed ones, the ones in covenant, it should remind you then of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples devise a vain thing? Why are they muttering to themselves? Well, they're muttering in order to cast God's cords from them. They do not want the restrictions of God. And that can happen within his covenant people. You hate my discipline. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. Uh, the word could be you, you run alongside him. And so in this accusation... He doesn't accuse them of being a thief, but they're going along with the thief. So they're, they're running along, alongside of him. Remember then Psalm, Psalm 1. Don't walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. So the, the picture is you see a, a thief, you don't rebuke him. You don't cast him out. Instead, you cast my words out. You're pleased with him. You may not... You may not uh, directly and overtly violate this commandment, thou shalt not steal. But you're pleased to see those that do. And so we have the formation of wickedness and that the wicked are allowed to run alongside, inside the people of God without rebuke. You associate with adulterers. And so you, you're, you're joined together with adulterers. Now, if you look at this fully, of course, that also makes you an adulterer. But again, we have this picture in which there seems to be some idea of righteousness in which you create a, a layer of separation. So I'm not the adulterer, but you're happy with and you're joined to those that are. And so God is issuing a word of, of re rebuke. It ought to remind us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. Flee immorality. Why? Because you are one with Yahweh. When we're brought into his house, we're joined to him by covenant. You are one with Yahweh, and so you cannot be joined to an adulterer because that adulterer cannot be brought into relationship with the Holy One, with the God who made the heavens and the earth, the Holy One of Israel, El Elohim Yahweh. The two cannot mix. And so, He's rebuking them. You associate with adulterers, and in so doing, you bring the wicked into my house. You've joined with them, but I've joined with you, and this cannot be. Verse 19, you let your mouth loose in evil. It's, it's the same root as the word cast. You've cast my words from you, from behind you, but what you're doing with your mouth is you're, you're shooting out of it. You're casting forth words of evil, and your tongue is 
joined to deceit. So again, there's this picture in which you've taken deceit, falsehood, into your mouth, and it's become one with you. It's, It's covenant language, in which you're married then to the very sin which you're committing. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove, reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you into pieces and there be none to deliver. This will help us understand this song that we're called to sing in Thanksgiving. The reproof is against those who forget who God is. Because God is silent, whether, whether that be during the week, if we think about our own application, God is silent, so we, we forget. And we can play these games where we join ourselves to wickedness. I say, like, like a child, I'm sure those of you that have children know this, children will, will test the boundaries. And so they'll see what the line is, and then they'll put one foot over just to see if anything happens. And God is, is talking to his people, and he says, You've, you, you haven't heard from me. I've been silent. And so you think that I'm just like you. And so there's one step further and one step further and one step further, and they've joined themselves to wickedness, and God has not spoken. And so there is this now a, a, an idolatry in which God has been recast in the image of man. And both halves of this psalm, there is this form of idolatry. One is more subtle than the other. In the first half of the psalm, there, there is this reminder, which could be a reproof if, if, if we're guilty, in which he says, I'm not like you. I'm the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm not hungry for, for meat like you are hungry for meat. And so if you think you are, if you think I am, if that's what you think sacrifice is, then you've remade God in your image. You've understood God through the lens of yourself rather than hearing God and understanding yourself through the lens of his word. You see, it's backwards. And we're always tempted to do this, and and I'm sure we all do it in some ways. We think about God. We were just talking about it on Tuesday night as we were reading through the book Knowing God. We can be idolaters when we think about God and as, as if he were us in our fallen state. We're made in the image of God. He is not made in our image. And the same thing then in the second half, but now in stronger language because it's overt. We've taken one step and then another step and another step, and because God has been silent, now there is this belief that God is accepting of our wickedness, that it's not that bad, and he'll still accept us into his courts, having been pleased with thieves and joined to adulterers. And so you can think about this in the, the, the nation of Israel. You think about this, um, maybe we'll bring it to light as Jesus enters his house in the Gospels and he overturns the tables. He says, you've, you've made it into a den of robbers. And so the nation of Israel was guilty of this sin, but we too, as covenant people, are called into God's presence and we have to hear the words of this song when we sing it before him. He calls us to submit, to know that he is God. And so in verse 50, uh, sorry, in this 50th Psalm, after, after God summons us, we have a break, an interlude, in which we're supposed to stop. No, this is God. <laughs> Yahweh, our God, and he is judge. So as we enter into his presence, as we stand in his presence today, he is the one that reviews us. If we forget this, verse 22, then we are in danger that God will tear us into pieces and there will be none to deliver. When we forget God, we, the covenant people, we forget who he is. So we we make him into an idol a reflection of ourselves, then this is the response. 
Consider this because you're in danger, lest I tear you into pieces. The word tear there is the word for how a lion rips his prey apart. So as you, you think through the Psalms, that's an image that's constantly there. We're in danger of being ripped apart by a lion. And the psalmists see that lion as their adverse, uh, adversaries. So they, they, they lament lest the lions come and the young lions tear them apart. And yet God himself can stand as an enemy of his people and tear them apart. And if God is the one that is the adversary, then there is no deliverance. If God is the one who we've made into our enemy, there is no one to save. And so as, as you sing through Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, I think it comes to, to fruition in 9 and 10, the young lions tear, they rip, they're, they're chomping at my heels. Well, that's fine if the adversary is, is people. Then we can turn and praise God because he will deliver. But if that adversary, if that lion is God himself, there is no one to deliver. And so God's call to us in both halves of this song, as he looks both directions and he calls his people into his presence, it's the same. And there is going to be a subtle difference, but the call is offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, or slaughter to God a slaughter of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. We'll see that those two things go together. This is a description of the peace offering that we read about in Leviticus 7. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll rescue you, and you will honor me. Remember where we started in Romans 1.21. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They speak forth lies about God, and the reason that they do this is because they do not honor God and they do not give Him thanks. They do not see fit to acknowledge who is God. And so there may be a word of God upon their lips, but there's a suppression of the truth of who God is. There is a form of worship in which we can come before Him and bow down before the name of Yahweh, before El Elohim Yahweh, and yet we've cast Him into our image, made Him like us. We've subverted the truth. And God says, no, set that aside, come to me and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, because in that thanksgiving sacrifice is the culmination of the sacrificial system. It sets a right, our perspective, on who God is and what he's calling us to do. So for a minute, let's go back to the book of Leviticus. And we're going to look then and make a few observations about this, this call to us. So Leviticus, first we'll look in chapter 3. There's four main passages in Leviticus that deal with the peace offering. I'll explain how that relates to the Thanksgiving offering here in just a second. The first is, is chapter 3, and then the part we read in chapter 7. So chapter 3 gives the offering to the Lord and the prescription for what that offering should look like. Chapter 7 describes then a little bit more about the meaning of the peace offering and the distribution of, of who, gets, who gets what. And then in chapter 19, we have a reminder of how that works on a horizontal level. And then chapter 22, we have a description of the requirements of perfection in the offering of the, the peace offering. So Leviticus chapter 3, I'm, I'm not going to read uh, the whole of it. We'll just read the, the first section. This comes in three parts, and they're largely the same. It's based on the type of animal that you sacrifice. So that sacrificial animal may be a son of the herd. It may be a member of the flock, or it may be, uh, in verse 12, a goat. And so those three sections are parallel. He repeats himself with only a minor deviation those, out of those three times. So we'll read first then in uh, verses 1 through uh, 5. Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he's going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before Yahweh. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to Yahweh, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove from the kidneys, remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar 
on the burnt offering which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to Yahweh. In the opening of Leviticus, there's three offerings that come in order. First, the ascension offering, in which the, the offerer lays his hand, again, just like, just like the peace offering, on the head of the, the sacrificial animal, and that burnt animal is then burnt up and the smoke ascends into the presence of the Lord. In chapter 2, there's a tribute offering, an offering of grain which is placed on top of that, a tribute from from us to our king God, and on top of that, then, is this peace offering. Again, there's this attachment in which you lay your hand on top of the animal. It's representative of you, but this time, and what's different, is that in the string of offerings, and in the, the, the ascension offering, the whole animal is burnt. All of it's gone. God eats all of it. It's called his, his food. In the tribute offering, God eats and the priest eat. But in this, this third and the culmination of these offerings, the peace offering, God, the priest, and the offerer all eat together. That's why this is sometimes called a fellowship offering. It's an offering of peace. And the word peace means complete or whole. So that which was broken apart in sin is joined back together, and God and his covenant people are joined in eating before him. And so all together then they partake of, of this, this offering. You'll see in verse 16 that it is food. But in this section we're only describing then God's portion and how to deal with it. The, fire, the fat is taken out and it's offered to God and the blood then is sprinkled upon the altar. If you flip to Leviticus 7, then we have more, more detail. And in Leviticus 7, this is in a, a new string of offerings. So we've added the description of the, the trespass offering and the purification offering. So the guilty now have a, a way to come into God's presence. Uh, the temple, God's house, is purified. And then we, we go through the string of the same three offerings, the ascension offering, the tribute offering, and then finally the peace offering, which gets the most attention in chapter 7, beginning verse 11. Now this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings which shall be presented to Yahweh. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil. And with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. So you see that there's an offering of a member of, of the herd, and along with it you have both unleavened bread and leavened bread. You have cakes of both. So the, this peace offering is both looking backwards to the removal of the people from the land of Egypt in which they've set aside the wickedness of the Egyptians, and now they're taking up and looking forward to all that God is teaching them, the leaven of righteousness, building out his kingdom and his covenant in their midst, and together then, looking backwards and forwards, they come into God's presence and eat with him. And you'll notice that it says that there is a, you, you, you may offer this peace offering, this wholeness, completeness offering, you may offer it by way of thanksgiving. So that's, that's one way in which you may offer it. And in verse 15, uh, we'll just start in verse 15 and, and then get to our point here. Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving, peace offering. It shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is votive, or by way of a vow, or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what is left of it may be eaten. So we find that there's three different kinds of peace offerings. There's one by way of thanksgiving, one that's in a response to vows, and one that is called a free will or a voluntary offering. And so there's, there's three different methods, but they're all peace offerings. So the offerings all look the same. They're all fellowship meals with God in which the worshiper comes and the fat is burned up, the blood is sprinkled, the priest eats the thigh and the breast after uh, presenting it before God, and then the worshiper and those that he invites with him must all consume the rest of it. And you'll notice then that there's two very similar sets of rules. The Thanksgiving offering 
is offered and it must be consumed that day and nothing is left until the morning or it must be burnt up again. And if it's offered by way of a vow or by, by way of a voluntary offering, then you have two days to consume it and then nothing may be left on the third, the third day. And so these, these offerings are, they must begin again anew every time. So what are, what are the, the cases behind the, the three? Well, Thanksgiving offering, it seems like there, there's no definitive prescription, but when the psalmists talk about it, or, or in the Old Testament, when you see people offering an offering by Thanksgiving, it seems to be in a response in which God has saved their life. He's responded to, to prayer, and so there's an obligation then of Thanksgiving. And I use that word on purpose. We're obliged to come before God in thanksgiving. Remember Psalm 116, the psalmist says, What shall I render before God because of the benefits he's given before me? I'll lift up a cup of salvation and offer to him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There's an obligation. And in Psalm 116, it, he uses the words of, of render like it's payment, but we're reminded in Psalm 50 that, we cannot write the balances. It's not as if God does good things for us and we can offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and then we're now on equal terms with God. He does not need our offering, and yet he delights in it. The votive offering, uh, uh, one, one more comment there. We can see this thanksgiving offering. Um, it seems like the initial Passover is a thanksgiving offering. Uh, because they, they ate the lamb and they had one day to eat it. So they had to consume all of it. It's a peace offering, a, an offering in which they, they ate with God. And I'll just point out to you then that, that that Thanksgiving offering is an anticipation of what God is doing. So it comes before the fact. And so when we think about Thanksgiving offerings... And we start to arrive at the language of the New Testament or, or Paul when he says, give continual thanks or in all things, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your thanksgiving be made known to God. That thanksgiving takes place both in response to and in anticipation of God's work. It, it, it is an act of faith. And so sometimes you see those peace offerings come and they come at a time of great joy. So there's a peace offering that, that's given in Deuteronomy 27 with the, the, the signing of the covenant and the giving of the law, and the people all rejoice. But there's also instances in Judge, Judges chapter 20 where you come before God and it's a time of mourning because salvation does not seem to have arrived yet, and yet still there is this peace offering, this communion, fellowship with God, and anticipation of the fullness of his promises. There's also a votive offering. Remember from Psalm 50, he says, offer up a, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows before Yahweh. So there's a, a second means, and probably uh, there's two examples of this that are easy to identify. One is in Numbers 6. So with the Nazarite vow, a man would, would pray before God and, and, and he would make this vow, which had all of the signs associated with it, in which he was taking up a special mission and calling upon God to, to watch over him in that mission. And at the completion then of that vow, he would offer up a votive offering with the cut hair of his head loose before God on top of the ascension offering in his presence. You can also see this with Hannah. Remember, she prayed to God and she vowed, if you give me a son, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring him into your presence. He'll be in your house. And Samuel then is a picture of a living offering, a votive offering of peace in which Samuel himself, the son that God gives Hannah, is united in fellowship with God. He dwells in his house, but in so doing, she brings with him a peace offering to fulfill her vows. So a bull is sacrificed by means of the way of peace offering. And then finally, there's this voluntary offering in which you can come at any time and bring, and bring your, your cow or your goat or your sheep and come to the doorway of the tent of meeting and present it before God and have a meal with him. That's important if you keep your finger there in Leviticus 7 and flip over to Leviticus 17.
In verse 1, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, This is what Yahweh has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Yahweh before the tabernacle of Yahweh, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from his people." So for the people of Israel in the wilderness, then it seems like if you're going to eat meat, you're going to do it in the presence of and with Yahweh. And he says in verse 5 why this is. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, and that they may bring them into Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifices them as sacrifices of peace offerings to Yahweh. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer it up in the fat smoke as a soothing aroma to Yahweh, and they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons which, with which they play the harlot, and this shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. And so if you're going to eat then, you're going to bring it before Yahweh and eat with Yahweh. It should remind you of 1 Timothy 4, 4, in which he makes all things clean that we can bring and eat in thanksgiving before him. Everything is brought to God, and it's for this purpose, so that we would not forget who is the one that gave us, who, who is the one that made us, lest you forget who God is. When the, the covenant is cast in Deuteronomy in chapter 8, he, he, he spends, as, as he's uh, moving forward to the blessing and the cursing, that chapter is all about this subject of do this so that you do not forget. In fact, he reminds them of how he works. I gave you manna in the wilderness. I, I took away and then I gave you manna so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from the word of Yahweh, so that you would not forget. And so in singing the, the songs of lament leading up to Psalm 50, we can see that in looking backwards, we understand what God is doing. That he gives, he gives that difficulty again so that they would not forget so that they would see that God is the one who fulfills, God is the one that gives, and then issue forth to him in a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so the three eat together, the priest, God, and the worshiper, and nothing may be left, and, and this, is, this is behind many, I think, of the parables in the Gospel of Luke. So when you have a festival and you're going to fill the, uh, kill the fatted calf. If you, if you follow these prescriptions, you're eating with, with Yahweh. It's a time of rejoicing, of thanksgiving, in which you're recalling all that God has done. But you do it publicly. You must do it publicly, unless any one of you can eat an entire cow by yourselves. Then there's a horizontal nature to the peace offering, in which it's not just you alone with God and the priest. Instead, you bring a horde of people to praise God with you, to give thanks for the abundance that comes from His hand. And God set that up so that you have no choice. You must be generous in response to God's providence. And if you think about the, the nature of the sacrifices, if you're poor, you wouldn't have any peace offering to present. There is alternatives when you think about the purification offering and coming before God. You may present a, a turtle dove or, or even in some cases a grain offering, but in the peace offering, there is no alternative. And so in thinking through what Jesus says in the commands in, in Luke 14, when you have a, fe a, a feast, who do you invite? Well, invite the poor. They can't pay you back. They can't invite you to your peace offering. And so in, in this offering of thanksgiving, there's a lateral dimension in which we come out and, and for us, this is what we're going to do. We have a peace offering before God presented by Jesus, which we eat together. We eat in public. We profess all that God has done. And we do this again and again 
lest we forget who God is, lest we begin to recast God in our image, to think that, that He finds our wickedness acceptable. Instead, we come before God, the one who, in verse 3 of Psalm 50, fire devours before Him. He comes to speak to us. He calls us into His presence. It's tempestuous around Him. He summons us, and our response is to listen to Him and then offer thanksgiving. To the one who does this, to the one who offers thanksgiving, verse 23 of Psalm, Psalm 50, he who offers thank, a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who sets his way aright, he shall see the salvation of God. I ran out of time to finish everything I want to do, so we'll pick it up next week. But to, to, to close, if you would turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hyde, Hyde read for us in the scripture reading the, the conclusion to this passage, which is, of course, related to Psalm 50 in, in chapter 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect in doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. But the origin of it is again in a call to worship in Hebrews chapter 12. You have not come, verse 18, to a mountain that may be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and a whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken in them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turned away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which may not be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence, of awe, reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He comes to us, and he, he is a fire that devours. In the intervening verses of Hebrews 13, 1 through 14, what we find in reverse order is the same issues of Psalm 50. Let the love of the brethren continue. It's a positive command. In Psalm 50, he says... You slander your brother and your mother's son. You can't stand before me. Let marriage be held in honor, he says. You've joined yourselves to adulterers. Let your character be free from the love of money. In Psalm 50, he says, you're pleased with the way of thieves. And then in verse 7 of Hebrews 13, remember those who love you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering their result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Do not be carried away by strange teaching. In Psalm 50, he says, you've cast my words away from you. You hate my discipline. Love the Lord. Love his word. Put away all sin. And that's what Psalm 51 is for. That it's written in a response. How do we come before God if we're guilty in the second half of Psalm 50? Confess your sins. Repent and God will show you aright the way of salvation, and then we're free to come to the very end, to enter into his presence, to eat and to rejoice with him, both looking forward to and looking backwards on all of the goodness of God. And in proclaiming that thanksgiving, we do not forget who God is, El Elohim Yahweh, the one who made us and the one who saves us. If you would stand, and let's pray. You are indeed our Redeemer, our Maker, our Savior, and Lord, we confess that every good thing comes from your hand. 
Lord, we want to proclaim your goodness, both in the salvation of Jesus in that most important event and in every last good thing that you've given. So give us words, and Lord, we pray that you would hear us as we bow in your presence and confess your goodness and your grace to us. Please be pleased with us as we eat at your table. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.